Welcome back to The Amazing Case, the emergency medicine and critical care podcast. Each episode, we will be interviewing clinicians to bring you real-life emergency medicine cases. The Amazing Case is hosted by EMD, Deakin University's ED Special Interest Group. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the EMD Amazing Case. With me today is Dr. Andrew McMahon, who will be talking about his amazing case and how it changed him. So welcome to the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into it, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, So I graduated from a doctorate of medicine back in 2017 um, up in Queensland, and I spent my resident years in a health service up there, um, working across kind of tertiary hospital, like rotating around tertiary hospitals, regional hospitals, and some rural hospitals. And then this year I've moved states to take up a critical care SRMO role, um, which was how I came across this case. And and by critical care SRMO role, what does that mean? So that's a, um, an SRMO is a senior resident medical officer, which is a role that you take up uh, usually three years out of university and it will be a, a role that you take up to try and streamline uh, your interest area towards some sort of specialty um, and people will do SRMO roles because they either need to get a certain rotation or because they haven't quite decided what they want to do yet um, and some quite common ones are, you know, medical SRMO roles, surgical SRMO roles, critical care, GP. Um, and I applied for one um, and was lucky enough to get it. So I've done some time in the acute medical unit. Um, I've done two terms in the ICU and I'm just about to go back down and rotate for a cardiology rotation. And so what does uh, your day as an SRMO uh, in the critical care unit look like? So in the ICU, there are a few different ways for a resident to be utilised, but in my unit, we were quite a a small-ish unit. Um, So the consultant would round on every patient in the morning uh, with the registrar and with the SRMO. So my day on that round is involved with writing notes showing uh, x-rays and blood results to the consultant and kind of documenting the plan for the day. Um, and then there will be a bunch of post ward round jobs that I'll then, uh, see two in the afternoon. Um, there'll be an afternoon round with the consultant. So going back round, although a lot more quickly this time, and again, I'll be writing notes and doing any jobs that arise on the round. And of course, you know, uh, this workflow will be interrupted by, um, anyone who takes higher priority. So the nurses will come to me with small issues, large issues. Um, and the job of a resident is in many ways to triage that and point uh, in the right direction. So, you know, is this a job that needs my attention? Does it need the ICU reg? Does it need a subspecial, like a different inpatient team subspecialty? 
um, doesn't need the consultant. Uh, and so, you know, attending to those, you know, urgent tasks as they interrupt the monotony of paperwork that is a lot of my job um, and talking to families, things like that. Yeah. And, and just for those students who have moved from interstate and mm. are thinking about either spending their intern year in Victoria before moving elsewhere, mm. um, how did you find uh, moving interstate? It's been, it really gets you to appreciate the different ways that you can practice medicine, um, that there are many different ways to skin a cat and some of the approaches that work well in one uh, scenario don't work so well in different healthcare infrastructures. Um, moving across states, it's been quite nice to know that medicine is medicine, kind of no matter where you go, but at the same time, the referral pathways and a lot of the bulk work of being a junior doctor does change quite dramatically in terms of who your specialty referral hospitals are and where you are expected to uh, transfer sick patients. Um, so that took a bit of getting used to and of course different IT systems and whatnot. Um, but I've uh, very much enjoyed my time down there and I'll hopefully continue doing that role or something similar in the coming years with probably hopefully trying to get into some sort of rural generalist pathway with anaesthetics, medicine, special interest skills in the near future. Mm -hmm. And for third and fourth year students who are, or even second year students who are thinking about going towards a rural pathway, mm. um, I know you from experience have enjoyed the, being in a rural setting. Mm. What did you find that you enjoyed about it as opposed to the metro centre? So for, to back up a couple of steps, I suppose I did my third year clinical placement primarily in a rural setting with my fourth year primarily at the Gold Coast in a metro setting. Um, the things that I found quite interesting and good about being a rural student were you were kind of very much valued as part of the clinical care team. Often a lot of those smaller hospitals are somewhat relatively understaffed junior-wise compared to bigger city hospitals. And so once you get to know the GP SMOs that work out in those areas and they get to know your skill level, they will be quite uh, happy to let you step up into more of an intern resident role, maybe more so than you would be expected or able to in a bigger city hospital just because there's often not interns and residents in those small hospitals and those jobs still need to be done and they will often uh, get you to kind of step up. So I found I learned a lot of uh, practical skills going out into the country. Um, of course, that does come at the downside too. You don't necessarily see the high level subspecialty tertiary care. Anyone who's that sick gets transferred out of anywhere, particularly that small. So I think it's important to have an appreciation of the good points, but also the the blind spots of any clinical placement and just make sure that you try and address them to have a well-rounded education. Mm. And so for those students who may not have necessarily got their first or second preferences in metro settings, mm. there's still plenty of upsides of, for them going into rural centres for training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the you will have to do some rural time at some stage in your training, whether that's... Uh, internship residency registraring or you know finding a consultant role out in a regional set, in regional area 
Um, that's not to say that, you know, my heart doesn't go out to those people because I appreciate there is there can be a lot of struggles with moving friends and family and going to different areas. But from a clinical point of view and from your training point of view, I don't know that you will have opportunities that others won't in the same ways that you will unfortunately miss out on some opportunities that others will get. But that's just part and parcel of training. Well, thank, thank you for bringing that insight into, you know, what can for some people can be quite a daunting process of deciding mm. whether or not to go rural and the positives and negatives of each. Mm. Um, so moving on to your ama- uh, amazing case now, mm. um, set the scene for us. Where are we? What's going on? And, and what, what happened? So we're in a regional hospital that has a kind of general medicine, general surgery, some operating theatres and, uh, and a very small intensive care unit. Uh, and we had a gentleman, we, we got a call from the ICU saying, sorry, got a call from the emergency department saying that we've intubated a patient, uh, they're yours now which is quite a common referral to the ICU because of course, if someone is on an invasive ventilator, there's nowhere else they can go if that hospital has an intensive care unit. And, and so for context, you are working inside the ICU. Yeah, so at this time I was working as one of the intensive care residents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And how many years out were you? Uh, third, third, third year out. Third yeah. year out. And you're now part of what comes could be considered nearly the pointy end and yeah yeah so i'm the my hospital i'm quite lucky in my hospital in that i've got a registrar and a consultant above me on the day staff so um or my first couple of weeks in the icu was a very steep learning curve um but thankfully i had a lot of support and very easily accessible teachers to help run things by because yes as you are correct everyone in the icu is by definition sick um there are levels of sick as i've come to appreciate but uh everyone there is sick and uh sometimes maybe decisions matter more than they do out in the community in terms of acute outcomes uh so yeah we had a this gentleman come through from the uh from the ed he was a about 60s relatively well um and had just kind of collapsed so the story that we got told by the ambulance staff and by the ED staff was that he'd been seen well that morning, n- nothing necessarily out of the ordinary, and then he just was found collapsed at home, uh, non-responsive, no pulse. Uh, so his wife started CPR, uh, which was then continued by the paramedics. Um, he it's a bit unclear but he seemed to have gotten one shock for what was assumed to be a ventricular fibrillation pattern um, a couple of milligrams of adrenaline with the ambulance and and they managed to get return of spontaneous circulation after about 20 minutes or so um came to the ed was uh hemodynamically stable and that he had a pulse um but he wasn't alert and so to protect his airway they um, put a breathing tube in an endotracheal tube in put him on an invasive ventilator and said icu you're up so i guess we came in to do the post cardiac arrest cares Um, i remember when i was in in medical school you know you learn a lot about uh, basic life support and advanced life support algorithms 
um, but no one ever really tells you once you've got a pulse, what do you do? What um, happens next? Yeah, what happens next? And mm. so, so what what does happen next? Well, uh, this was as much of a learning. This was this was a pretty good learning opportunity for me. And the nuts and bolts of it boils down to you want to maintain as much homeostasis as you can, and that applies generally to the ICU. Um, they're very fixated on trying to keep everything within normal-ish parameters as much as they can to allow the body time to reverse whatever is reversible. Um, so in the ICU setting, basically, uh, we inherited a patient that was uh, relatively stable, but there were probably still a couple of extra things that needed to happen to um, put him into a, what you would call a, a stable state. Um, part of that is getting um, access. So uh, we put an arterial line in his wrist into the radial artery, which lets you measure blood pressure beat to beat. It also was a very easy way of getting blood samples for both formal bloods and blood gases. And also putting a central line in, um, usually in the ICU, it's into the internal jugular vein, but there are a few different sites. Um, and that's about having a very large bore multi-lumen cannula that you can run infusions, whether they be antibiotics, uh, fluids, uh, vasopressors, um, things of that nature. Uh, and of course, uh, sedatives. So uh, depending on the type of arrest and the types of studies you read, there is some evidence to support active cooling of patients, or at least at the very least preventing hyperthermia. So we then put him on a machine called the Arctic Sun, which was basically uh, something called targeted temperature management. So you set a dial and the machine will keep his temperature to 34 to 36 degrees. And, mm. and for those, those people who are listening who are not sure what an Arctic Sun is, um, it is essentially a refrigerator. Uh, and it's a, it's a refrigerator that's uh, about the size of a 20 litre um, esky and it, the water inside it is cooled down and then the water is pumped through pump, uh, special pads that are adhered to the patient's skin. And so um, as the water flows across the surface of the body, that takes the heat out of the patient's skin and then it's returned to the reservoir where it's recooled. So that, that's what the Arctic sun is. Sorry, sorry mm. to interrupt. No, no, that's right. Um, the one thing that I've learned very quickly in the ICU is there's a lot of machines and toys that you don't see elsewhere. So it can be a bit daunting for students just to be overwhelmed by the sheer number of beeping lights and specialist machinery that you just don't see elsewhere. Um, so yeah, please interrupt if things need clarification. Um, we also kept him asleep with a couple of sedatives. We were using propofol um, and we ended up keeping him paralyzed as well with a rocuronium infusion. Um, and so that basically kind of gets him stable. And now you want to go back through um, kind of a head to toe assessment, which is something else that you learn very much, that the ICU is very good at kind of taking a very holistic approach and all systems approach to patient care and trying to make sure that you don't miss something that could be important. And so, so what types of things would you be looking for, for instance? So um, specifically to this patient, obviously he's had 
he's at high risk of a couple of uh, cardiac sequelae after his arrest. So, you know, you want to make sure he's on a continuous cardiac monitor to whether he goes back into ventricular fibrillation or some sort of other arrhythmia. Um, he's at risk of kind of cardiogenic shock um, through various mechanisms, whether that's papillary muscle rupture or just myocardial stunning. So having that blood pressure monitoring is very important and the ability to help his blood pressure with some sort of vasopressor or inotrope, um, which is again, part of the reason for the central line. Um, but it's also about going back and making sure that the, you know, ABCs going back through doing primary and secondary surveys. So A, he's got an intratracheal tube in, making sure that's still in the right place. It hasn't moved, confirming that with chest x-ray. Uh, breathing, going back through the ventilator settings and making sure that he's on the lowest amount of oxygen that he can be on and still maintaining his saturations, uh, that he's on adequate pressures that are not too high, not too low. Um, and that he's ventilating enough, that he's moving enough air. And so going back to that normal everything that I was talking about before, you're wanting to aim for normoxia, so having a normal SATs and a, a normal O2, um, not being too high, because of course people who are in the immediate resource period are usually on you know 100% or very high levels of inspired oxygen. So you want to bring that back to the lowest point that you can. Um, and you want to aim for a, an arterial carbon dioxide level of around 40, again, aiming for normocapnia. Mm -hmm. um, then you go on to see, making sure that his blood pressure is stable, do you need to start any inotropes? In his case, we did need to, his blood pressure was a little bit low, so we ended up starting a noradrenaline infusion. Um, just because the sedatives that we were giving him kind of vasodilate the extremities and to help counteract that, that's where the noradrenaline comes in. Um, going back through exposure, making sure that he's sedated enough with the propofol and the fentanyl. Um, we ended up putting a BIS monitor on, which is a, a monitor that goes across the forehead to measure brain waves and alertness activity. Because of course, if someone is paralyzed, they can't move to tell you they're distressed. Um, and then going back and doing the secondary survey. So looking at the head, is there any injuries or out of anything out of the ordinary? Um, when we went back through and did that, we realized that he had some um, rib fractures uh, and actually had a, a right-sided pneumothorax. Uh, so I had some decreased air entry on his right chest and some subcut emphysema because um, the CPR was quite vigorous. Mm. And, and so we, we think that... Because, sorry, was this a witnessed fall or witnessed arrest? Or I think it was unwitnessed. Unwitnessed. And um, so we think the, the cracked ribs may have been from the CPR as opposed to like an injury or something. Yeah. I mean, there were no other injuries to make him suggest that he uh, hit his head or anything on the way down. But of course, he did score himself a CT brain and a CT chest, which is how we found these things. Mm. Um, so obviously a, a pneumothorax. Thankfully, in his case, it wasn't tension, so it wasn't increasing, changing his hemodynamics at all. But you go and quickly put in a chest strain. Yep. Um, and just quickly for the people mm. who aren't sure why we do that. Uh, so a, a pneumothorax is basically, uh, actually, uh, it, listeners of the podcast will be well up to date on pneumothorax, having oh, been discussed on previous episodes. But basically, it's when air gets between the lung and the lung lining. Um, air is not meant to be there and it ends up pushing and collapsing the lung. 
um, which of course has lots of uh, problems with gas exchange and ventilation. But if that air continues to build up pressure, it can push the medias, mediastinum across to the other side of the chest, compressing large blood vessels, impairing the heart's ability to pump, and of course causing cardiovascular collapse. Um, so that's, that's not a good thing, and you want to relieve that, relieve that tension if it was there, but certainly reinflate the lungs because that will go a long way to improving gas exchange. And reducing that oxygen, like you said before. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, some other small things that we did. Uh, obviously, people who have had rib fractures are at high risk of bleeding from those fractures, but also anyone who's in the ICU is at high risk of getting blood clots, uh, whether that's DVTs or pulmonary embolus. So we ended up putting on a heparin, him on a heparin uh, subcut regime for uh, VTE prophylaxis and kind of just kept him quiet overnight and then I got to see him in the morning. And uh, to cut a long story short, we kept doing that for about 42, 48, 72 hours, cooling him, keeping him sedated and paralyzed. Um, and then that's when you start to come back on those uh, intensive homeostasis measures to see where you're at, basically. Um, you want to allow the body some time to heal what there is to heal, and then uh, uh, heal what there is to heal, and then uh, see where you're at. So um, come back on sedation and see, is his brain working? Come back on the um, respiratory support, make sure his lungs are, are working, you know, make sure that he hasn't arrested again and make sure that his heart's working. So we ended up getting a, um, an echocardiogram to see if there were any uh, myocardial stunning or heart muscle, you know, uh, valvular ruptures. Um, and we ended up getting some neurology input to help guide, um, make sure that there was no permanent brain damage. And then when his, it looks like every organ is kind of working as much as it's meant to or as near as it can, um, then you look at coming back on some of your cares. So the first thing we did was, of course, take the Arctic sun off because he's not needing to be cooled anymore. There's only evidence for that for about three days. Sorry, just back on the Arctic sun for a second. So mm. what was the rationale behind using that? Because you've, you've mentioned it a few times and you've now pulled it off. So, so what were we trying to do with the Arctic sun? So basically what you're trying to do is um, either induce hypothermia or at least at the very least prevent hypothermia. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, research in the area that I'll confess I don't and not qualified to talk about, but basically you're trying, the theory is that you're trying to reduce the metabolic demand of the body and prevent uh, kind of uh, extra brain injury. So like the secondary brain injury that we see after an initial insult. So yep. in, in this case, he's had a ischemic um, downtime, if you will. Mm. So the, a, a period without his um, adequate perfusion to his brain. Mm. And, and so because of that, we 
we assume that there's some tissue damage and we're trying to prevent that secondary injury. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Um, and so I guess that's probably what we're trying to do for his entire post-cardiac arrest cares is make everything as normal as it can be to, you know, prevent further injury, prevent further sequelae and allow the body time to heal what has been damaged or repair what can be repaired. Yeah. Um, so we ended up getting an MRI brain for him, which showed nothing, no obvious uh, brain injury signs, uh, which was a good thing. And he, when we came back on his sedation, he, with the tube in, um, appeared to be uh, oriented following commands, um, which I think is probably a bit unusual if you're not used to working in an ICU. There's, there are, someone isn't asleep or fully awake. There are kind of twilight zones where someone can be able to follow a basic command like, you know, squeeze my hands or uh, cough on command, but they won't uh, remember be having that intubation uh, or that tube in their throat. Um, they, we then tried to take the tube out, but obviously his um, uh, pneumothorax, uh, his lung function maybe wasn't as good as we thought it was. So he unfortunately failed that extubation and we had to re-intubate him because of his uh, work of breathing. And then they um, have moved to doing something called a percutaneous tracheostomy, which is basically when they put a, a trachea tube or a, a breathing tube in uh, at the base of the neck going into the trachea. And the reason you do that is you can take out the uh, endotracheal tube it still keeps and wake them up, but you can still keep someone on the ventilator and do a slower ventilator wean. And uh, last I heard, he was doing quite well mm -hmm. um, and starting the rehab process because, of course, he's had a major insult to his physiology and to his um, life, and he's going to have a... a a long way up but um so far things are going well okay. um mm. that, that's fantastic to hear mm. um and, and what struck you about this case for you what, so the the why? couple of things i took away from it to be honest were the first one was just about that icu is very much about uh, and particularly post-cardiac arrest care it's not it's high risk but it's not and there's a lot of nuance to it, but at its core fundamentals, it's not complicated. If there's a number that you can make normal, try and make it normal. If the sugars are high, run an insulin infusion to fix the sugars. If the oxygen's low, increase the oxygen. If it's high, decrease the oxygen. Um, and just try and allow the body time to repair what can be repaired. Um, the second thing that struck me was just how much can be repaired. Um, in the right sort of patient. I mean, he was not young, but not old and relatively healthy and has had a relatively good outcome after this uh, insult. And if, you know, good care is given, it does, re you know, does give good or can give good results in the end. And that's quite rewarding. Um, and the third thing I probably took away from it was just seeing the ICU staff being uh, very team focused, 
Um, there was a lot of, everyone had a job to do, uh, whether that was the bedside nurse who ran all the machinery and tried to keep everything as normal as possible and alerted the medical staff to concerns, um, the medical team overseeing things and coordinating, you know, uh, communication with the family, the social work, helping the family um, come to terms with the grief and uh, navigate some, you know, financial support structures, uh, physiotherapy to help clear and improve lung function, but also then once he's awake, improve muscle tone, because of course he's been in bed for weeks. Um, speech pathologists get involved because they have an unusual swallow once they've been intubated for that long. And I suppose it was just uh, medicine nowadays is very much a, uh, or should be a team sport. Um, everyone has their expertise and you should add your own expertise to the care, but recognize other people's expertise. And I think the ICU does that, or at least my ICU uh, does that quite well. Mm. Um, and I think other ICUs do as well. Um, everyone is an expert in their own little field. And yeah. No one's the master of everything. No. And I think a large part of the, the medical team's job is kind of coordinating that care and recognize taking people's expertise and putting it into the right place because of course you know the physiotherapist uh, might want to you know have the patient do some physical exercises but if their nurse is worried about their electrolytes and they're running high risk infusions then you know trying to balance those competing demands um yeah, I think I think coordinating care is is a large part of the ICU, or seems to be a large part of the ICU job. Yeah. yeah. And um, do you have any final comments for people who are the students who are thinking about coming into uh, the critical care setting, where ICU or ED or anaesthetics? Anaesthetics, sure. Um, so the the couple of things, I mean. Uh, the, the, two, the few things that I will say, um, the ICU is, most students in their final year will go and have a very short term in the ICU, ICU. and uh, if it's anything like my time as a student there, I didn't get a lot out of it um, because I was only there for a short period of time and a lot of the care being delivered was probably above what I needed to know and so it wasn't explained to me um, and so I kind of turned up did the minimum and left um, so what I guess what I should say is if you have that experience as a student don't discount um, intensive care and the the greater critical care specialties because I've come back to it and having come back to it and known a bit more and spent a lot more time I've thoroughly enjoyed it um, but I think the things that students can take away from their time is one, appreciating kind of the team dynamic involved in care and taking that out onto the wards and trying to emulate it as best they can. And the second thing is kind of for people who are unwell, having that very systematic approach to um, A, B, C, head to toe, finding fixable problems and then doing something about it, whether that's as simple as, you know, the potassium's a bit low in a cardiac arrest patient, 
well, they probably need some extra potassium to help maintain everything run as smoothly as it can. Um, and I think, yeah, just that attention to detail is something that I've taken away from my time in the ICU. There's one other thing I, I did want to mention was something that wasn't explained to me as a student and I was then guilty of making some poor referrals to the ICU team. Um, when you call the ICU, they will ask some very specific questions about not only the patient's medical care, but also their background, including their social history and their goals of care. So do they have an advanced health directive? Do they have an enduring power of attorney? Are they, um, are they for all these interventions, whether that be CPR, intubation, et cetera, et cetera, dialysis? And I think the reason all these questions get asked is not to make the junior doctor feel bad, but it's to make people realize that the ICU is essentially an organ support service to try and buy people time so that the body or the other medical teams or surgical teams can fix what can be fixed. Get everything back to that homeostasis yeah, again. Yeah, exactly, in, in intensive homeostasis. Um, so if a patient, um, you know, doesn't want an invasive intubation, they don't want dialysis, um, they don't want to have a central line, that, that's all the ICU would be offering them is that kind of support for homeostasis. And if the patient doesn't want that or wouldn't benefit from that because of whatever situation, um, that's not a reason for them to come. Just because someone is sick isn't necessarily a reason for them to come to the ICU. Um, you've got to ask, what can the ICU give in addition to ward-based care? And if the ICU can't offer much, then um, that sick person may stay on the ward to just see what happens. Um, and I think that was something that I wasn't aware of until I came back to the ICU. Um, I, I just kind of thought that if someone is sick, they come to hospital, and if they're very sick, they go to the ICU. Um, I wasn't aware of that kind of nuance of the ICU's job is intensive homeostasis um, yeah and those interventions that some people may not want and um, some people have asked not to have yeah yeah and so regardless of how sick they are uh, they won't go to the ICU yeah because they uh, it's either not medically appropriate or the patient doesn't want those invasive interventions hmm. um, I know it's a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of people to discuss but um, it's important to have that discussion because otherwise they get suboptimal care um, in the ICU because we can't do what you want us to because they won't let us. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, that's, I think that's a very important lesson to kind of impart onto students. Mm. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, thank you very much for talking to us about your amazing case. Mm. and. Uh, to all the listeners out there, uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Money, money.